HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com, bringing you the freshest radio in Brooklyn since 2009. Hear directly from chefs to farmers, artists to architects, authors to brewers, and everyone in between. Check out all of our shows on our website or by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. Whole Foods Market is a proud sponsor of Heritage Radio Network and the Department of Transportation's Summer Streets, a three-day series of events dedicated to healthy, active living on the car-free streets of New York City. Join us at the Whole Foods Market City Picnic Area on 24th Street and Park Avenue the first three Saturdays in August. Find more information at the DOT's website, keyword Summer Streets. to Let's Eat In on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kathy Irway. We're here at Roberta's, and it's, uh, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty nice, lazy Monday afternoon here. Um, the heat wave is finally over, and, uh, but that doesn't mean it has to happen in your kitchens. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good one. <laughs> because we have our, uh, today's guest is Lauren Shockey, and she just came out with a book, or it's just coming out on Wednesday, mm-hmm. sorry, called Four Kitchens, My Life Behind the Burner in New York, Hanoi, Tel Aviv, and Paris. Yeah. It's, thanks um, so much for being here. Sure. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, basically, it's a memoir of a year I spent working in uh, four restaurants around the world, the year right after I got out of culinary school. So it's sort of what life is like when you first step into the kitchen for the first time and that anxiety and fear of not really knowing how to cook and sort of being in this new environment, but also just learning about different food cultures around the world. Is that what every food uh, culinary school graduate gets to do? They get to go to four different continents? Well, I guess not everyone, no. So that's um, pretty amazing. You, you, took upon, you took this upon yourself and decided yeah. to go um, explore. So yeah, basically, um, I was working at WD50, um, which is the first restaurant in New York City, and I really wanted to work there and learn about molecular gastronomy and just sort of learn a totally different type of cuisine. And mm. I'd always wanted to go to Vietnam. Mm. Um, I was in love with Vietnamese food and had never been to the country, but I was like, I need to go there right now. 
Um, and then sort of ultimately at the end of my time at WD50, I sort of pitched the idea as a book and I got a book deal. So wonderful. that sort of allowed for the last two experiences to happen. Okay. Wonder- well planned. It yeah. Sounds like so you it was exciting. Crush. I bought an around the world ticket and just set off on my adventure. Did you really circumnavigate like the globe? Yeah, no, because to buy yeah. the around the world ticket, you have to go in the same direction. So I just went from point A to point B. Uh. And- Interesting. So that must have been a shocking difference from WD50 to mm-hmm. Hanoi. Right. And the restaurant in Hanoi was called La Verde Call. It was sort of an upscale Vietnamese restaurant. Oh. Um, and sort of, yeah, it was New York City, sort of WD50 is very So it wasn't quite restaurant. a rustic experience. It was, it was the, not the, the pinnacle fo- yeah, of... It, it wasn't the faux yeah. stand on the street. Um, <laughs> it was still a restaurant with a full staff um, but it, it was a very different experience, just sort of the amount of preparation at WD-50 for every single dish. Um, whereas in Vietnam, it was much more sort of on the fly. Um, mm-hmm. Knife skills weren't quite as important. They weren't quite as important. No, I mean, they just used walks and um, cleavers and were like, okay, just chop it up. It doesn't right. matter. Whereas right. at WD-50, there was a precise knife skill for every dish and everything that you were doing. Do you think this is because of the appearance factor? Like maybe the that's less um, uh, important? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just a very different style of cooking, sort of molecular gastronomy or modernist cuisine, as we call it now. Yeah, what, um, what is that anyway? <laughs> I guess it's sort of a type of cooking that uses different techniques um, and sort of different ways to manipulate food and ingredients to create presentations that might not normally be done. Mm-hmm. Um, so so now that you're back, are you back in the game in New York's kitchens? I'm not, actually. I work at the Village Voice right now. I'm one of the two restaurant critics there, so I'm kind of on the other end Ooh. of the spectrum, which is, it's been really exciting and somewhat difficult. I do miss the cooking, mm-hmm. um, but sort of at the end of the book, um, while I did really love restaurant cooking, I think what I loved even more was home cooking, which I'm sure you can sort of understand as well. Uh, I don't know anything about that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But there's just a very different energy. Um, Being in a restaurant, it's sort of very repetitive and very high pressure. It's sort of, you have to get fast, fast, fast. Whereas in the home kitchen, you sort of have more room to improvise and experiment. And you get to enjoy the food with the people that you're making it for. When you're in a restaurant, though, you never really get to see people's reactions. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, one of the things I really loved is just sort of making a dish for someone and seeing them enjoy it. But Can you ever come out and say, hey, did you like that? Um, (laughs) Maybe maybe if you're the the executive chef, but not if you're like the little prep cook. Not for everybody, I'm sure, because you you churn out so many dishes again and again Mm -hmm. um, every day. So that's a different experience. It's funny because I was just thinking that because I made a dish that is similar to something I've, I've seen at a restaurant that I've been to. And I, I thought, because at first I was craving it. It was a mm-hmm. pasta dish from Franny's. Um, and, and then I was like, you know what? I, I have a lot of these ingredients. I'm just going to go for it. I'm going to make something. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, spent a while just enjoying making it. And in the end, I was like, you know, that was pretty much the same or perhaps better. Yeah. But I, you know, I love, you know, how much care that restaurants put into sure. everything they make, mm-hmm. but they can't possibly put as much care as I just put into <laughs> my own meal. <laughs> it's not going to happen. I mean, unless they, they have um, a, a place where that's maybe not that busy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I only made my meal. <laughs> 
Yeah, I think it's a different sort of care. Because um, I think when you work in a restaurant, you do want to put out the best possible plate you can. Mm-hmm. And it's at some of these very high-end restaurants where people are paying $50 for an entree. There is this, Ooh, I know. gosh. It's, it's expensive Pressure. out there. Yeah. Was that so, what you were making at WD50? At WD50, the entrees are about $30. But when I was in Paris, I was working at Sondarin's, which has two Michelin stars. And I would say, like, some of the entrees there were definitely $50. Mm-hmm. What was, what was like, one example of something you made again and again? Um, one dish that I really liked there was a lobster ravioli. It was an open-faced lobster ravioli with a vanilla foam and a couple of three, three spinach leaves on top that were perfectly plucked. Ooh, with fresh spinach? Fresh spinach. And then there's a little bit on the bottom that had been sort of warmed. Mm. So, so how, what's an open face ravioli? So a- basically, it just you would use a wonton wrapper actually as the top, and then it would just sort of rest over the lobster meat and kind of drape over it. Oh, I did that. I thought I was cheating. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, cool. Mm-hmm. All right. So, what's the weirdest thing that you made in Tel Aviv? The weirdest your stint thing. There? Hmm. You know, the food there was actually pretty. Um, sort of familiar, uh, a lot of Mediterranean items. I was at the restaurant where I worked, um, Carmela Bistro, sort of a Mediterranean bistro, a little bit more laid back than some of the other places. And I was running the appetizer station. So we did a lot of salads. Um, one of the salads that the restaurant's known for is an herb salad. And so it has mint and parsley and a little bit of arugula and toasted cashews. And you just mix it with olive oil and lemon juice. It's really, really simple. Ooh, is that kind of like tabbouleh salad? Sort of. There was yeah. no um, there was no tomato and there was no um, bulgur wheat. Okay. It was just the herbs and greens. Um, mm. So you sort of felt like... So it's all chopped up. It was just there. chopped up herbs. And it was really great. So it was one of those dishes where it takes about five minutes to make, but you realize how just a couple of really fresh, flavorful ingredients can make a dish really unique. Wow, that sounds like a good um, lesson to take home to yeah, your cooking for now. Sure. And so why did you choose these places? Are you, is, do you um, hold dear any of these areas? Are you from any of these well, I'm areas? Fr- I'm no? from New York City, actually, okay. born and raised. So, um, and I was living in New York to begin with, so that was sort of the easiest place to begin my adventure right at home. It's easier to sort of plan the logistics that way. Did you grow up cooking, like, always? Were you always... I did. I grew up in a family where we always had family dinner every night. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say my parents were gourmet cooks. They read Pierre Franny and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, But we definitely sat down as a family for dinner every night. It was just me and my parents. I'm an only child. Mm -hmm. Um, And sort of from there, we always had cookbooks in the house, and I was always interested in reading it. Um, So I I would say I was a competent home cook before I went to culinary school. And then after going to culinary school, I I got a bit more sort of, I understood the techniques and sort of how to cook over high heat Mm -hmm. and how to add lots of salt. Cool. So was your original plan to take all these skills that you learned elsewhere and maybe open a restaurant one day or when you went to culinary Mm -hmm. school maybe at first did you want to be a chef um I always enjoyed I thought it was something that I wanted to try and sort of that was the reason why I wanted Mm -hmm. to go work in these restaurants to see maybe I do want to be a chef and then I think sort of after this experience um and sort of realizing what I loved about cooking was sort of not in the restaurant side of things not in the restaurant but maybe the food writing so you can still explore and I had done a little bit of food writing um in college so that was sort of something that helped me figure out where I am now well, congratulations on spending a lot of money hey. at culinary school. No, I know. <laughs> no, I mean, that's sort of the first line of the book, actually, is, you know, culinary school is a very expensive um, thing. You really only learn how to salt food and oh. cook over high heat and then how to learn how to drink beers like a pro. 
Uh-huh. That's funny. You know, I was reading the first um, um, few chapters of this, and the first thought I had was like, oh, yeah, I'm getting a... Yeah, it's kind of like Kitchen Confidential or Heat for a moment yeah. there. Just like the inside scoop of what a restaurant is really like and being able It is. To. I think it's, it's obviously not an expose, but I think it does sort of explain sort of what restaurant life is like. Right, it gives you All of the prep work that you don't really see when you're a diner. And sort of, you do spend maybe like two hours picking parsley just to have enough parsley for service that night. Hmm. And sort of all those small details that you would never really see when you're a diner. I do that all the time at home, no? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember there was a, um, it was a great kind of uh, descriptive moment where you're having to separate the yolks of yeah. a, a vat, it sounded, of eggs. Yeah, we did about uh, five flats of eggs, so around like 100 eggs or so, and I would have to separate the yolks from the whites because at the restaurant, one of the dishes was That's the... an enormous amount of eggs. It's a lot of eggs. Um, and Wiley has a really great Eggs Benedict dish, which has a custard made out of egg yolks, and you cook the custard sous vide. So it's in a plastic bag, and you cook it at low temperature, and it sort of creates this really great sort of custardy, eggy smear that's on the plate. Hmm. Um, but to get enough egg yolks for that, you do have to separate about 100 eggs. So I taught myself how to do it one-handed, like in Sabrina, which was very exciting. Oh, I miss that. <laughs> uh, yeah, when you crack an egg with um, oh, yes. one hand. Okay, so gotcha. Yeah, I'm, I was just imagining like scooping your hands in and trying to grab all the yolks still intact, and uh, yeah, that's well, a lot of whites too. I and the whites actually got thrown out. Oh, that's which stinks. was sort of sad. And yeah. I mean, we would we would save as many as we could, but there were just so many that right that you had to make yolks for. Mm-hmm. I wonder if they'll make a chicken now that only lays. <laughs> yeah, I you know, I can see that maybe in the future. <laughs> you never know what these guys. Yeah. Like a giant yolk. <laughs> so so what's been so now you're a food writer. How mm-hmm. is everything at Village Voice? Is it It's great. Yeah, I've been at the Village Voice now for about 8 months and it's really funny. I got my job on Craigslist of all places. Mm-hmm. Um they posted it there and um, yeah, so I write a weekly restaurant review, and then I also blog daily at Fork in the Road, which is our weekly food blog, or daily food blog. Check it out. She's it's, all it's over fun. it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's been great. It's been interesting sort of being on that other side, and sort of having the restaurant experience, I think, has really helped. It's yeah. also somewhat hard, though, when you realize, you know, a restaurant is someone's sort of passion in their lifeblood, and then if for some reason the food that's coming out just isn't quite delicious, it's very hard to write a negative review sometimes. It's hard for you? Some people love doing that. No, I think it is hard because I I know what what those hours in the restaurant kitchen are like. So you're you're a critic with a conscience, maybe. Somewhat. Yeah. I guess at the same time, though, I have very high standards having worked in restaurants because I know that you can put it, putting up good food shouldn't be that hard. Hmm. But it's, a, it's quite it's quite a paradox. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I think you picked out a song to put on just to. I did. To I break chose Vice One Two Three Four because of four of kitchens. Four kitchens around so the world. So each time she says it, you can think of the four kitchens. We'll be right back after this. One two three four. Tell me that you love me more. Sleepless long nights as Cozy and 
we're back on air on Let's Eat In with Lauren Shockey. Hi. Hey, author of Four Kitchens, My Life Behind the Burner in New York, Hanoi, Tel Aviv, and Paris. Um, what was I just about to say? Uh, I love this cover, by the way. Is that Thank supposed you. to be it you? Is, it is me, actually. Oh, it is you. Yeah. Um, now, did you have to wear one of these hats at all the four I kitchens? I did. In, um, in the picture, actually, on the cover, I'm wearing one of the paper toques um, that go way toques, high up. And, that's it. Yes. And goes like way high up into the air. And actually, in Paris, um, that was the required headwear, just sort of the big paper toque that you kind of look a little bit ridiculous in. At all the other places, I had sort of a baker's cap, which is right on the head and short and made out of cotton and much more breathable. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Paris, I did have this paper toque that I had to wear and then put it in my locker and wear it the next day. Mm-hmm. I got a new one each Monday, but sort of by, by, by the end of the week, your, your toque's a little sweaty. Now, what's the purpose of it being like a top hat made out of paper? I mean, I think it's supposed to hold your hair in. Um, in all honesty, I'm not 100% sure. I mean, yes, it is supposed to hold your hair in, but hmm. I think the baker's caps work better, in all honesty. <laughs> it doesn't hold in the, the chef from the Muppets hair too right, well. Right, yeah. <laughs> I mean, as a woman, too, you kind of have to tuck all of your hair inside of the toque and do yeah. sort of a weird bun on top of your head. Were there any toque wars where you tried to kind of... No, <laughs> alas, no toke wars. I don't think that would have gone well in the kitchen. <laughs> Sorry, I'm thinking of, like, fencing with your hats. Okay. Um, and knives. And knives. <laughs> um, so so the last the last kitchen you went to was, was Paris? It was Paris. And that was sort of, you know, thinking about learning where to cook. Paris just makes so much sense. It's sort mm, of where totally. gastronomy began. And I really wanted sort of a place that represented sort of old school French food. Um, and so Sandoraz actually used to be Lucas Carton, which had three Michelin stars, and Alain Sandoraz was the chef. And he was really important in the 70s, sort of bringing nouvelle cuisine to light. Nouvelle cuisine. Sort of um, the traditional French cuisine, but sort of bringing it a little bit more lighter, maybe using vegetable stocks instead of cream. Um, and he's just really been a pioneer of French food. But then sort of a couple of years ago, he decided he wanted to give back his Michelin stars and was like, I'm over this, you know, I don't need you to tell me how to run my restaurant. And he turned the whole restaurant into more of a more casual bistro deluxe, as they would call it, um, sort of with lower prices, you know, going from $100 for for, $100 for an entree to 50. So more for like the people. Yes. And then, yeah, sort of a people's bistro, although it's still the rich people's bistro, just not the exclusively rich people's bistro. <laughs> super, super. He, he went down and on. Yeah. Okay. But, um, but he actually That's got cool. two Michelin stars back. They were like, oh, we'll give you some anyway. Okay. So, wow. Yeah. Gosh, what a, what a dramatic. I like, know. <laughs> stars, um, wow. All right. Well, um, you would probably know the answer or have some really good answers to this question because you've been to Paris and all these sexy places. Mm-hmm. You're from New York. Um, what is the sexiest date meal? Ooh, the sexiest date meal. Um, Well, I always like to make some sort of, like, big meat dish, like a steak or, like, a braised meat. Juicy Yeah, something juicy and rare. You know, I do feel men just really love, like, a big piece of meat Mm -hmm. in many ways, I suppose. Um, Yeah, you know, do that with some sort of comforting, like, potato-y gratin. Yeah. I think. Just, like, good comfort foods. Now, does gratin mean cheese is involved? Because I've heard yeah, not really. I, yeah, I would say so. Uh, okay. Um, and then you would do it so that the top would be kind of crusty. Um, mm-hmm. You might put it, like, under the broiler or just sort of bake it until 
it's nice and like gooey on the bottom and crispy on the top. And you can do this yourself, right? Pretty easily. Oh, yeah, because mm-hmm. yeah, it's just about a good cut of meat. Yeah, basically, just get a really nice cut of meat, salt and pepper, high heat. That's really all you need for a good steak. Do I need a griddle pan? No, I would say right? no. Yeah. I'd say any sort of pan as long as it's really hot. Um, pan you know, sear don't be afraid it. of like the very like highest heat. Yeah, just pan sear it, and then you can finish it off in the oven. Just oh. so, um, hmm. just so then like you don't burn the top um, searing it. Burn the top like of the steak. Oh, okay. So, so you do it really on high heat on top of the stove, and then you'd finish it in the oven. You don't flip it. Yeah, you would flip it. Okay, you flip it and mm-hmm. then transfer it. I yeah. haven't tried that one yet. Okay, uh, there, it's rare that I get a. Uh, a, a lot of uh, rare meat <laughs> in my system, but yeah. um, it's always fun to to do those quick fixes yeah. for a luxurious meal. Yeah, for sure. And then, I mean, that's much more of a winter dish too. I think in the summer you could do just like a bunch of really nice salads. Um, I really like to make Vietnamese food um, when people come over, just because I wow. feel it's very impressive yeah. and they like to hear about that. And I'll try and do things that, um, like, one of my favorite dishes from Vietnam is a banana flower salad. Banana uh, flower? Yeah, it's great. And I've never seen it in a restaurant here. But well, there Well, there's so many banana flower <laughs> plants here. I, I know, know, it's why. true, yeah. <laughs> um, but there is actually a, a place on Grand and Christie that sells banana flowers. It's oh. the vegetable seller right there. And you just sort of chop up the banana flower until it's like really fine, like a coleslaw. So you, it's not like a petals, you have to chop it. Um, well, it's, it looks like a big bulb and then you would take the leaves off and chop them. I think I have seen this. It's sort of reddish in color. Okay, cool. I'll bring you one next time. Does it look like a ginger flower, which I've cut? Uh, I don't know. What does a ginger before? flower look it like? It tastes gingery. Oh. But it's kind of reddish and it's awesome. Oh, I've never had that. We'll have to do a swap. <laughs> yeah. So where are you going to go next on your culinary adventures? I don't know. I mean, I'm in New York for, for now. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I've never been to Thailand, so I'd really like to do that. Um, Sort of, I really loved the flavors. There you could find the ginger flower. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and the banana flower, I bet. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and I just, I really love Southeast Asian food. Um, sort of how the cooks use really brightly flavored ingredients, things like lemongrass and mint, where you really don't need to add a lot of seasoning because they're so flavorful on their own. Right. Um, or fats. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, no salad dressing in Vietnam would ever have an oil. It just would use fish sauce and lemon juice. Yum. And it's really healthy and delicious. Yum. And you said you you like making Vietnamese food for friends? I do, yeah. Like, what about summer rolls? Is that a good party uh, yeah. food? No, that's a great party food. Okay. I think people are always really impressed. Um, and in the book, I have a recipe for crab and perilla summer rolls. Ooh. And perilla is kind of like a shiso. It has a great sort of funky, like florally flavor. Okay. And sort of instead of like using lettuce as the thing that you wrap it, I use a big perilla leaf and then a little bit of avocado and crab meat and it's sort of like a california roll meats oh wow so it's it's rolled up in the leaf now well it's also in the rice paper oh okay the leaf is yeah it's against Mm -hmm. the side of it so you see it that's a good one that's a good dish for the yeah and then um one of the other dishes i do is bun cha which is a grilled pork patty over rice noodle dish and where i was in hanoi it's sort of one of the national dishes of hanoi it's bun cha hanoi and I've also never really seen it. I've seen it at a couple restaurants here, but it's really not as popular. Whereas there, you get it on every street corner, and it's delicious. Mm-hmm. Sweet. Yeah. You, you must be like an encyclopedia of food by now, after all these uh, travels. I mean, not, I, so, somewhat of Vietnamese food and French food, but there are mm-hmm. a lot of cuisines out there that I don't know as much about. So Now, this was a good year out of your life, so I know you year. must have, um, I don't know, had gone through so many, met so many people that mm-hmm. you talk about in this book. What, what do you think was the biggest uh, 
takeaway from the whole experience? Wow, there's so many. I mean, sort of, there's the culinary side, sort of figuring out what it was that I loved about cooking. Um, But then just sort of meeting all the great people that I met. Um, The cooks in Vietnam really wanted to practice their English with me, and they would have notebooks where they would write down English words that I taught them. And on the last day, we all went out, and they were like, it's so nice to do this because we never get to like sort of hang out with Westerners. Westerners yeah. um, and I thought that was like really poignant. And I'm, it was really great to sort of see people's food cultures in a different light, sort of experiencing them with them. Okay. Which was yeah. great. Was it hard to get around for tr- um, language wise? Um, well, I'm fluent in French, so it, it wasn't okay. a problem there. And surprisingly, not so much in Vietnam or Israel. And I don't speak Hebrew or Vietnamese. Um, sort of in Vietnam, people really wanted to practice English with me, which was great. Um, And they would teach me some Vietnamese in response, but Mm -hmm. whenever I would try and practice what I'd been taught, they just looked at me blankly. (laughs) (laughs) And I'd be like, oh, did I say it right? And they're like, no. No. (laughs) Um, And then in Tel Aviv, everyone does speak English as well as Hebrew. So basically in the restaurant there, we operated on a ticket system. Mm -hmm. So when an order comes in, our station would get a ticket saying what people had ordered, and they actually wrote it in English for me, which was great. Still, it's quite different from learning to slam beers and just talk shop with your fellow chefs. No, and I think just sort of... Yeah, it was very different in each way. Um, And you do sort of see some similarities of what... Any restaurant operates the same way, no matter where it is, and that it's putting food out for customers and um, sort of a lot of the chopping and Mm -hmm. just sort of sort of the handiwork that needs to go in great yeah you know i'm so um i i really respect that you went on this huge trip right out of culinary school because it's it seems like you just furthered your education even more yeah for sure would you recommend this as a good way to for folks to just get their feet wet getting kitchens elsewhere i would say Obviously, it is somewhat expensive to do an around-the-world trip, but I think if anyone's interested in going to culinary school, I would definitely recommend working in a restaurant first. It's kind of um, like the gap year, you know, yeah. after graduating. No, for sure. Yeah. And, um, you know, restaurants are always looking for apprentices, and even if you don't have experience, I think they'll be willing to teach you. And as long as you're a hard worker and sort of show that, yeah. you know, that would be you fine. You just show up and say, if, hey. As long as you show up on <laughs> time and are quiet and work hard, you know, that's really all a restaurant, like, wants that's in some way. That's Cool. Um, and yeah, as we as we talked about earlier, culinary school is a very expensive venture. And if you realize after going through that experience that oh, restaurant cooking is actually not what I want, mm. um, you know, you are <laughs> you have just paid for that. <laughs> Maybe skip the culinary school and just do the trip. <laughs> yeah, I mean, ultimately, it's, a, it's like yeah. the same price. Cool. So. In- int- very inspiring. I hope that Thanks. this is a, lo- um, a really fun read for just about anyone, but also pretty inspiring for all those chefs out there just trying out. And uh, it was a really fun taste of so many different kitchens and just kitchens in general, yeah. as you mentioned. And their recipes so you can try the foods yourself. Yeah. So what's the next restaurant you're going to tear-, tear apart in the Village Voice? <laughs> I can't tell you that. <laughs> this one? <laughs> no. I know. Okay. Um, are you having a, any parties, lunch parties for the book? Um, yeah, I mean, readings I'm, or something. Yeah, I'm going to be doing some events. Um, at, on the fourth, I'm going to be at the New York Public Library doing a reading and Q and A. So awesome. that should be fun. And okay. then I'm doing a couple of literary food writing events in September. So okay, yeah. Can we find four kitchens? Yes, four website? kitchens. Um, it's available on Amazon and at all bookstores. And 
Yeah. Fourkitchens.com? No? No. Laurenshockey.com. Laurenshockey.com. Good enough. (laughs) Sounds good. Excellent. Well, I can't wait to see what you come up with next. Yeah, I know. I'm excited. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for being here today, too. And best of luck with uh, the book, Books Launch, and also Village Voice. Thanks. Check out yourself. Okay. See This is Behind the Scenes Food News with Katie Kiefer. A new film is coming out. It's called American Meat. It's a documentary based on the life of Joel Salatin of Polyface Farms. But it also includes footage from conventional livestock agriculture and processing plants. So you do get a bit more of a um, less biased, shall we say, uh, view of how livestock agriculture works. It makes many of the same arguments, of course, as you would have seen in Food, Inc., so there's nothing especially groundbreaking here, but in this case, the producers claim to be free of a quote-unquote agenda. If you didn't get enough information from Food, Inc., look for this one. Again, it's called American Meat. The website gives no release date, but you can learn a little bit more by Googling just American Meat. This has been Behind the Scenes Food News with Katie Kiefer. Sugar on the Pole and City Winery are proud to present the Summer Barbecue Blowout Festival, August 6th, from noon to 4 p.m. The barbecue is happening at City Winery, located at 155 Varick Street in New York City. Restaurants featured at this event are Empire Mayonnaise, Van Dag, Momofuku Mopar, Imperial No. 9, Mile End, Mexicu, Kraft, Dizzy's Club, Coca-Cola, The Meatball Shop, and Dos Toros. Providing the soundtrack for the day are Midnight Magic, Computer Magic, New Villager, Punches, Ducky, DJ Autobot, and the Snacky Tune DJ. VIP and general admission tickets are available at citywinery.com. Finger on the Pole for City Winery would like to thank our sponsors. Heritage Foods USA, New York Magazine, Rake of Vodka, Sonar, Smile, Guilt City, Sub-Zero and Wolf. Please come out and join us for a day of fun, food, and dancing. For more information, go to www.fotpnyc.com.